You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Millions of people tuned in today to watch the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, Britain's longest serving monarch. Here with me today to make sense of this pivotal moment with the Queen's death and the extension of King Charles III is David Miliband, who served as Foreign Secretary from 2007 to 2010. David, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks, Francis. Very good to be with you. Uh, a word to our audience before we go any further. Please send in any Twitter questions you ha may have to at Post Live. You can tweet your questions to at Post Live, and we'll try to take a few of them during the show. So, David, um, you probably saw the queue. I'm sure you did. Five miles long. We watched those huge lines of people lining up and headlines are now saying this is the moment that unites the nation. Do you think the Queen's funeral in any way points towards the survival of the monarchy? Well, I think it's hard to make instant judgments, especially on the day of a funeral. I think it's very important to recognize quite what a unique person uh, Queen Elizabeth was. Uh, 70 years on the throne, a third of the life of America, as someone uh, pointed out, and someone who for 70 years had made public service such a central feature of her, not just her life, but her existence. And what I uh, try to explain, especially in America, I live and work in the US, but I'm obviously a Brit, as you can tell from my accent, is that the unity that you reference in respect of the Queen uh, legitimized great political division beneath her. And that's the combination that I think is important. It's not that British people agree about everything, but there's the point of unity, especially the point about public service, with stoicism, with, with grace, with commitment, uh, with tolerance, uh, with an ability to bend and to change. Uh, that point of unity, in a way, provided a, a basis for people to disagree in ways that weren't too disagreeable. And I think that's <laughs> been uh, part of the secret of uh, success. And the, the sheer range of um, British points of view, you saw the, 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 the elected um, First Minister of Northern Ireland from Sinn Féin, the Scottish Nationalist First Minister of Scotland, um, able to be engaged in this period of mourning uh, in a way that I think was quite powerful. And so um, I'm sure you watched the funeral uh, I did this morning. Um, I thought the music was really extraordinary and it was in very much in keeping with the Queen's personality. She wasn't someone for verbal superlatives and there weren't too many verbal superlatives. The superlatives were in the occasion and, and in the music, I think. Yes, how very well put. You raised the, the question of um, political unity going ahead. Britain is at a, as a, a striking moment with Brexit uh, still not fully understood. Uh, internationally, there's a reckoning over the uh, legacy of colonialism that comes to a head maybe with this moment. Um, there's economic instability, war in Europe, an awful lot going on right now. How do you think, think those things uh, fit in as we have this great transitional moment with the extension of King Charles III? 
Well, I think transitional, which is the word you use, is a very well chosen word. The transition at one level was seamless uh, last Thursday week, 10 days ago. Uh, but obviously, it, it's, a, it's a grinding, it's a period of grinding gears uh, for the Western world, given the invasion of Ukraine, uh, for Britain, given the adjustment post Brexit to its political alliances, never mind its economic alliances. Uh, and uh, that uh, has prompted all kinds of debate because the, for some people, the Scottish question is unresolved. Um, and there remain very real issues about how the position of Northern Ireland is to be squared with the Brexit that the government have, have chosen. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, for, for many British people, the last 10 days have brought a relief from those questions, but those questions haven't gone away. And the place of Britain in Europe and the wider world, it's, Britain is still a European country, even though it's left the European Union. Um, is important. Its position in the wider world remains um, uh, very much contested. And it's a country that still has great strengths, but its domestic strains are real. The values you talked about, particularly duty, we often associate with the Second World War. And of course, the Queen was a link to that period. What do you make of the response of young people now? Do those same values resonate with them? Well, it's interesting. Let me just say one thing. I read a comment today from uh, Paul Keating, who's the former Prime Minister of Australia and avowed Republican, and he um, put it very well, I think. He, he, he talked about how in the 20th century, there'd been, a, uh, uh, if you like, a privatization of individual feeling. He didn't quite put it like that, but he, he used a phrase like that. And he said what the Queen embodied was an, an assertion of public spirit. And I don't mm -hmm. think that is a... Um, historic or 20th century idea. And uh, I want to try and link that to your question about young people, because I think there are uh, tens of millions of young people all around the world who see a world of connection between them and people far away. And they, they haven't privatized themselves into their own cubbyhole. Uh, they are thinking globally um, about serious issues, but also about culture and sport and other aspects of life. And so I uh, think that it, it, one, one shouldn't try and isolate the reaction to the Queen's death separate from the wider issues that face the globe. I mean, I uh, spend my professional time running a global humanitarian organization. We help people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster. We were, we were founded by Albert Einstein, the International Rescue Committee in, in New York in the 1930s. So we take the global view and what we see is the consequences of an undermanaged and mismanaged global commons. My point mm. in answering your question is that that undermanagement or mismanagement of the global commons is something that's felt profoundly. And actually, I think when people ask themselves, well, why, why are young people still, why have there been so many young people queuing or so many young people on the streets to meet Prince Charles? One potential explanation is that actually he's been um, very modern in his embrace of the need for living within the confines of living within the natural confines of a single planet that we that we share. Right. Of course, ideas of his that seemed a little outlandish years ago now seem very current. And maybe you can talk a little bit about them. His interest in the climate, in uh, organic gardening, in uh, building to a human scale. Yes, uh, Prince Charles, um, as he then was, uh, um, I became um, Secretary of State for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs in, the, in 2006, and he um, 
was determined to open um, himself up to answering my questions about his views. He was happy to give uh, advice. And more recently, he's been the patron of the International Rescue Committee in the UK and has thrown himself into that patronage in a very serious way. We took him on a virtual visit to a malnutrition clinic that we run in northern Nigeria. He visited himself uh, refugees from Syria in Germany. He went to Jordan and visited the Zatri refugee camp uh, where um, we deliver, uh, or I'm sorry, it was outside Amman actually. He met refugees from the Zatri refugee camp uh, who came to meet him outside Amman. Um, so he's someone who uh, has shown a genuine humanity and humanitarianism. Now, obviously, as king, he uh, has to will have to curb his charitable activities. He said that himself mm. uh, the day after the queen died. Um, but I think that that is an important aspect of the way that the monarchy has moved on. And I think it would be a pity if that sense of humanity or humanitarianism was was lost. Um, in the transition that's now taking place. Uh, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about your personal experiences with royalty. Of course, you traveled with the Queen when you were Foreign Secretary. She's known for putting people at ease. She's known for being very knowledgeable. She's known for this dutiful uh, approach that you referenced earlier on. What else surprised you about her? Well, she was just distinctly unstuffy. It's the last thing that you would expect. <laughs> uh, she was uh, dignified, uh, but unstuffy. And I saw a number of examples of that. When, um, when Condoleezza Rice uh, was finishing as Secretary of State in the US, um, we were racking our brains about how we could mark her departure from office because she'd, whether you agreed with her or disagreed with her, she, she obviously came from the center right of the political spectrum. I came from the center left of the political spectrum, but she was a, a remarkable colleague in all sorts of ways. And, there was a state dinner, I think, for the president of Mexico, and um, we suddenly had the idea, why don't we uh, offer to Condi the chance to play in the music room at Buckingham Palace with my wife's a violinist, so she brought three members of the London Symphony Orchestra, and, and we couldn't get, really get an answer until we asked the Queen, and she said, oh, that would be a great idea. And sure enough, <laughs> in uh, I think it would have been in December 2008, um, Buckingham Palace was open for Condi and uh, my wife Louise and, and her colleagues to play a quartet, um, and there were corgis running around who the queen sort of slapped um, when they when they got out of line. Um, and she she was un, she was extraordinarily dignified but unstuffy when, uh, as you referenced, when the queen uh, went on foreign trips. The foreign secretary goes with her. I think you had a couple of clips there, a couple of photos. Um, I had to depart from a visit to Lithuania and Latvia, uh, and the, the 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 protocol would have been well that meant. My wife would have had to go back on EasyJet. And the Queen said, oh, don't be ridiculous. She's part of the team. Just let her come along. She, she was unstuffy, <laughs> while obviously maintaining decorum and uh, dignity at every stage. And my goodness, she knew her stuff. I mean, he, she'd met every prince and prime minister you could think of and president. And if you were discussing different countries around the world, she had insight that uh, spoke directly to this idea that the monarch was there to provide counsel to her ministers, which I think uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury re referenced in his, in his eulogy this morning. You referenced these overseas trips, and of course, they grab the international headlines, as do weddings and today's funeral. 
but it strikes me that much of what the Queen has done and we'll see going ahead has made local headlines rather than international and national headlines. Am I right in thinking that? You mean local in the UK? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we shouldn't get this uh, at one level. Um, it's been a global event. Another level, we shouldn't get it out of proportion. Uh, the, the, of course, it's more important to British people than to uh, people anywhere else. Of course, uh, there, are, there are all sorts of issues about the future of the Commonwealth. There are countries debating whether to become republics. That's totally within their rights. Uh, but equally, I think that the, 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 the longevity and sincerity of the Queen's reign is something that has given everyone a chance to pause and reflect. Let me pick up on that. Why do you think the Queen has has captured the imagination of Americans? And I don't just mean this funeral. I mean, for decades leading up to this funeral, um, she and her family were um, followed in uh, popular magazines. Is it all about celebrity instead of duty? Or is there something else that I don't understand? Um, well, you should probably ask some Americans that you live here you live here so has it a guess for me I'll give you my, my my perspective first of all i think that the fact that she'd met every american president since truman gave her an absolutely unique mystique and the fact that she didn't talk to anyone about what they were like meant that there was this added uh, sense of um added dimension uh, to her role. In fact, she'd known um, the uh, representatives of the United States from the 1930s. Um, she, she remembered uh, President Kennedy's father being the ambassador to the UK at a very difficult uh, time uh, when debates about appeasement and, uh, and rearmament were to the fore and were uh, contested. So I think that Part of the secret was the longevity, and part of the secret was the extraordinary um, determination not to speak publicly about what she knew. And that, gave, that added to the allure, I think. And I think at a time when so many public figures um, uh, are brought down, whether by themselves or by the media or um, by circumstance, uh, she sustained a level of performance, if you like, a level of um, public service that could only bring admiration. Now, the fact that she was a, a queen uh, maybe has a special um, uh, distance, but also a special allure in a country that renounced the monarchy um, 250 years ago. So let's look forward, as you did, you referenced the fact that some countries may decide to be independent from the Commonwealth. Um, we're also undergoing a, a, a reckoning in many countries about um, the legacy of colonialism. What specific challenges do you think a 73-year-old white man has in managing these enormous challenges moving ahead? Well, I think to go back to what I started with, his mm -hmm. job is not to manage them. His job is to be the monarch and to respect the limits that are placed on that. And politics will take its course. And in the end, uh, he will perform his duties, but countries will come to their own views. I heard an interview with the Prime Minister of Australia, the Prime Minister of New Zealand separately. Um, they, they both said, look, 
this will be addressed, but now is not the time to address it. Uh, there's a period of mourning, there's a period of respect. Uh, we've got big global issues that we're dealing with. Um, we can come to this in, in due course. And I think that there have been similar statements from prime ministers and presidents in the West Indies, in Barbados, in Jamaica, and elsewhere. And uh, I think that in going forward, there will be uh, politics, and then there will be the role of the monarch. His role is obviously uh, to listen, uh, to advise as appropriate. But in the, in the end, uh, it's, a co it's a commonwealth, not an empire. And uh, the, that was the transition that happened under Queen Elizabeth and, and is now settled. And so other countries can decide for themselves. They've, they've become independent. The question is whether they want to become a republic, and that's, that's for them. So I'd love to hear your views about um, stability in Britain. We've got a, a new king and a prime minister who uh, the queen ushered in two days before she died. What does that mean for, um, and you've made very clear, the monarchy is not about politics, but still, what does it mean for political and leadership stability? Well, Britain has provided a great example of stability at the level of head of state recently, but not a very good example of political stability. I mean, this is uh, the fourth prime minister in six years. So politics is reflecting the tumult of society um, and tumult within the Conservative Party, obviously, uh, which is the governing party in the UK. And Britain faces big, big challenges, some of which face every industrialized society. How does it make its way in the world? How does it make, how does it create wealth in the modern world? How does it distribute wealth in the modern world? Those are generic problems, whether you're in Britain or France or, or America. Now, Britain has some added dimensions to it, most notably around Brexit, which is massively unfinished business, unresolved business. Brexit has happened, but the contours of future relationships between Britain and the rest of the European Union, or Britain and the European Union, is completely unresolved. Um, there are, in some ways, consequent, but also separate national questions in Scotland and elsewhere, constitutional issues. And uh, there are bread and butter issues, because although Britain is, relatively speaking, um, less dependent on Russian gas than uh, other parts of Europe, it is as affected by everyone else, as everyone else by the rise in the gas price. And so the economic pressures are very, very real. There's high inflation, there's high and growing gas prices. Uh, there's, uh, by historic standards, relatively high uh, debt to GDP. So this is a very contested and testing time for British government. And I think anyone who predicts to you that it's going to be serene and stable on the political front going forward um, is probably kidding themselves. You mentioned Europe, obviously, in that discussion because of Brexit. But could Brexit throw Britain closer to the United States, tighten the special, famous special relationship we've heard so much about? I don't think so, because I don't think any American government that looks at the global balance of power would want to allow the UK to become a wedge between relations of 27 European countries and Washington. Now, there are institutions like NATO that go beyond the EU. There's a transatlantic bodies that involve uh, America and Canada, all the European countries, um, bar Ireland, which is neutral, um, and, but also include the UK. 
So there are other organizations, and they've proved their worth in the course of the, um, for example, the Ukraine conflict. Uh, but I don't think, I think any British politician and several of the current government have fallen into this trap of thinking that they could somehow drive a wedge between Washington and Brussels. They could use links to Washington to uh, put pressure on Brussels. I think that's deeply mistaken. Um, I think Britain got a lot of strength in Washington from its relationships with Brussels. So now that they've been sundered, that actually poses a problem for the UK. And I always uh, say to people that the transatlantic relationship between Britain and the US has to be about more than weddings and funerals. That's especially relevant uh, today. But it can only be more so if there are strong relations between London and Brussels. And it's effective as a triangle. It's not going to be effective as a duopoly. David, I want to ask you about the IRC in a second, but one last question. Um, you've seen the, the Queen's work as a diplomat, in effect, traveling with her. Um, today, uh, the Princess of Wales met with the First Lady of Ukraine, Olna Zelenska. Um, what is the role of a slimmed-down monarchy, which we gather we're going to have, going ahead in terms of uh, greasing the wheels for uh, Britain's relationship with the rest of the world? Well, I hope that the monarchy can re reflect the best of British values. And in much of what the Queen did, she did that. And you can't do better than that. And representing British values is something that's slightly different from representing British interests. It's the job of government to re reflect British interests. They can be short term, but Britain's values should be long term. And that's something where I think um, the monarchy um, has a role to play. So let's talk about the IRC. We're talking on a day when Hurricane Fiona dumped something like 30 inches of rain on Puerto Rico, is heading up through the Dominican Republic, uh, through the Turks, and will go on towards Bermuda, it seems. Tell me what the role is of an organization like yours, given this huge growing threat we appear to have from climate change. Well, our job as a humanitarian relief agency is to help people survive, recover, and gain control of their lives after their lives are shattered by conflict or, or disaster. Now, I believe that the humanitarian movement and the climate movement have not done a good job at working together. Uh, there are three statistics I want you to remember. One is 54, 54, that's the number of civil wars going on around the world, separate from Ukraine. Uh, the second number is 100 million. That's the number of people around the world who've been displaced from their homes, who've been rendered homeless by conflict. 55 million are internally displaced in their own country, 45 million are refugees and asylum seekers. You know that in the, the US, uh, people coming from Central America. And the third figure is 345 million. That's the number of people around the world who are what the UN calls one step short of famine. They're at the international phase classification three or four, five being famine. Um, those are people who'll go hungry tonight. Now, the striking thing about those three statistics, the civil war statistic, the displacement statistic, and uh, the hunger statistic, is they're all affected by the climate crisis. You could probably calculate that at least half of the uh, wars, half of the displaced, and half of the uh, hungry, there is a climate dimension. It's not that there's a climate refugee, but that there's a, a climate a contribution to the conflict that causes refugee flows. And so this requirement that we understand that the climate crisis is not just tomorrow's problem, it's not our grandchildren's problem or even our children's problem, it's today's problem, is very, very important. And that's something that where I think the commitment of my organization to help people survive and recover and gain control of their lives must take account of the climate crisis. Well, then, 
let's go straight to Pakistan, where we're seeing this enormous flooding there. Um, do we need a global organization to oversee these these disasters and try to pull together the climate message along with the disaster response message? Well, I think the first thing to say is that one of the uh, dangers in the debate about so-called global warming, so-called in the sense that it's more accurate to talk about the greenhouse effect, the danger of the phrase global warming is it suggests something incremental. Um, it, 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 we don't talk about global boiling, which would sound more dramatic. Now, the truth about the greenhouse effect is that it's associated not just with the rise in the average global temperature, aka global warming, it's also associated with more extreme weather events. And the amplitude of the uh, weather events that we're seeing in Pakistan, that we're seeing in the hurricanes, um, not the frequency, but the amplitude, um, speaks to the changes, the man-induced, man-made changes in the uh, climate. Now, second point, there are global organizations. There are global UN agencies. Uh, there are global UN environment programs, the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. So there are global agencies, but they are struggling to keep up with the tide of human misery uh, that exists in, an, in a world which is undermanaged and mismanaged. And that is the essential uh, challenge that we face today, that the risks are global, whether they be health risks or climate risks or nuclear risks, but resilience is increasingly national. And that's a mismatch that leaves you with the kind of problems that we've got today. So we spoke about a year ago and you were talking about the need for a leadership level group that could combat pandemics looking ahead. Is there a parallel there? I mean, a, a leader, we have the WHO and you explained to me then that the WHO is about disease, not about national security, uh, economic issues, and the many other uh, ramifications of a pandemic. Do we, is, is there a parallel there between those needs? That's an interesting question. Just for the benefit of your audience who weren't necessarily here last year, I served on the independent panel for pandemic preparedness and response. And the point we made was that pandemics are not just a health issue. Pandemics are a security issue, they're an economic issue, they're a political issue. And that's why we argued in our report that there needed to be a high-level panel of political leaders, if you like, a UN Security Council for pandemics, uh, that would uh, mobilize global attention, that would hold accountable different actors. Now, you can make the same argument in respect of the climate. Uh, the climate crisis is not just an environmental issue, it's an economic issue, security issue, mm -hmm. political. Uh, issue. And that's where I think we should be deeply concerned about the fragmentation of political leadership around the world and the increasing tendency of countries to opt out of the UN system. And uh, there is a global set of rights and responsibilities on individuals and states. It's set out in the UN Charter. And there are a set of global institutions, but too many nations are divesting themselves of their global responsibilities and their global multilateral commitments. And that's, I think, where the debate needs to, to return. That, that includes a debate about reform of the UN, but it's, but it's also about commitment uh, to global action. Because this nationalization of resilience at a time of globalization of risk is a recipe for disaster. David, I've got quite time for only one last question, and I, it's another pandemic one. Um, you talked before about, well, we've talked before about, about um, attacking pandemics. This year we've had uh, polio 
a resurgence of polio, which is a vaccine preventable disease. We've got monkeypox. Um, we're seeing many viruses which were knocked back during the pandemic revive themselves. We've also in this country had GOP legislators push back public health measures. Are we, did we learn anything from this pandemic? Are we any better prepared to face another one? Well, I think that there is an interesting example in monkeypox because the determination of the Director General of the World Health Organization to declare a public health emergency of international concern, uh, even though there were still divided opinions on his executive committee, is very important. It's exactly the kind of preemptive action that we in the Independent Panel on Pandemic Preparedness and Response recommended. And so that does suggest lessons have been learned. However, the, the failure of, for example, the US Congress to fund at all the global uh, vaccination drive, that, that, that's a, an example of a failure to learn uh, lessons. So I think it's a mixed picture. But for me, the, the real lesson is absolutely obvious. We're an interconnected world. And whether it be health security, environmental security, nuclear security, unless we tackle these problems together, none of us are going to be sheltered. David Miliband, former Foreign Secretary and President of the IRC, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for your time. Well, it was a powerful message to leave us with about the importance of understanding the interconnectedness of the world. We have lots of good programming coming up on Washington Post Live. You can go to WashingtonPostLive.com and you'll see a line up there and we'll look forward to seeing you again. I'm Francis Deed Sellers. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.